Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As promised, we have something a little different for you this week. At long last, we have the winners of our second Flash Fiction Contest, which took place earlier this year. The muse for our contest was an unsettling piece of artwork, a painting by Polish painter, sculptor, and printmaker Gustav Gwaszczeki. I can try to describe it to you, to jog your memory, but as with any artwork, it's probably best to see it for yourself, which you can do at talestoterrify.com slash flash contest. From an inky black canvas looms the deeply shadowed face of a young man. In the gloom, his eyes are nothing more than two dark pools that seem to stare straight into your face, deep into your soul. Unsettling? For sure. Inspirational? Apparently. We had a fantastic turnout for this contest, and I'm excited to share the fruits of that labor with you here tonight. It was an extremely tough decision to narrow it down as much as we did, and we've still ended up with four runners-up and a winner. Before we dive in, though, I just want to point out that, aside from our winner, 
the order you'll hear them in this evening is by no means hierarchical. Our runners-up will be presented in more or less random order. Each of these bite-sized tales has very much earned the chance to worm its way into your ears, and we don't want to judge them any more than we already had to. We begin our winners not with a story, but a poem. One that comes to us from Amy Sampson Cutler. Amy Sampson Cutler is a writer who earned her master's degree in creative writing from Goddard College. Her work can be found in WOW, Women on Writing, The Pitkin Review, Wellness Universe, and Elephant Journal. Her novel, A Shadow of Love, will be released in May of 2022. She can be contacted through amyshippiehut.com. Children of the Night, join me for Amy Sampson Cutler's My Dead Girl. Who is the dead girl that follows me around? Is she lost now that I am found? I am found because I am me. But if that is true, then who is she? There is a dead girl. I'm not sure of her name. She whispers to me, we sound the same. She looks like me. Only she is dead. She's there when I wake, when I lie in bed. Who is the dead girl? She sounds so sweet. Yet her eyes are dark. Her tone is meek. This girl of mine, she won't leave my side. When I call to her, her mouth opens wide. And that is when I follow her, through the dark... We sit on a swing in an empty park. Who is this dead girl? This girl is me. Look in my eyes. Now do you see? The girl is me. The girl is you. Just take our hand and you'll see her too. That was Amy Sampson Cutler's My Dead Girl, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 05 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 06 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas, before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients 
in addition to having fun with the slice of sci-fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Our next author is someone you may just recognize. You could even call her a regular here on Tales to Terrify, Christy Nogle. Christy Nogle is a member of the Horror Writers Association and Codex Writers Group. She teaches college composition and lives in Boise, Idaho with her partner Jim and their dogs and cats. You can read her most recent and upcoming stories at Vastarian, Synth, an anthology of dark science fiction, and Flame Tree Publishing's American Gothic Anthology. You can read more of her work at christynogle.com or follow her on Twitter at christynogle. Listen with me, children of the night, to Christy Nogle's Viridian Green. Trevor, younger than the other workers in his division, had long assumed they found him charming. Weren't they always asking about his community theater roles, encouraging him to put up posters for them in the kitchenette area, promising to remember to come to the next one? Weren't they always implying he was handsome? But in the first day of remote work, he had the wool pulled from his eyes. There, on the screen, he was profoundly unattractive. The asymmetry, one eye higher and larger than the other, the uneven jawline and the gray tint to his skin. All their faces were placid while his contorted into strange expressions. That very evening, he set about changing things. After his work with the spreadsheets was done, he put in an hour practicing calm and fluid speaking, another hour analyzing the recording, another rearranging the bookshelves behind him, and then moving the bookshelves into the cramped entry so that there could be a plain white wall behind him to facilitate smooth edges on a computerized background. It did not take another hour to find the background. His initial search brought up the perfect thing. Soft leaves. Or were they feathers? In viridian green. Subtle enough for business, but a little nod to his supposed creativity. Just the thing to bring out some warmth in his skin. Sleep was short that night, but the morning meeting went well. Before official business started, Trevor had compliments on his background, and in a private message, Margie said, Glad to see you're looking so well today. I was a little worried. The supervisor spoke for a long while. Trevor had time to study the picture he made and was pleased. As long as he didn't speak, all was well. And yet he had to be visibly engaged. He practiced reducing his expressions. Smaller nods, smaller smiles. The meeting, then paperwork. Trevor fell asleep on the couch and woke feeling certain that the meeting had never ended and would never end. 
Another morning, another meeting. The face in his rectangle was not his own. It had a cleft chin. Trevor had always wanted a cleft chin, but not like this. This was wrong. When Trevor moved, this new face moved, but never in exactly the same way. His small nod at a colleague's recommendation was translated to a thoughtful, slow, deep nod, chin on the knuckles. Then the Trevor on the screen began to speak, not agreeing, but challenging the colleague, challenging the idea in a snide, arch-winning way. You're on fire, said Margie in a private message. I, I, th I think I've been hacked, he typed back, but the face on the screen was his own again now. He didn't hit send, only gave small nods while the supervisor, beaming, said, Trevor has a great point here. Still worried there'd been a hacker, he couldn't focus on work that afternoon. All was given over to internal debate about what had happened and what he could do. He couldn't say, I, I wasn't me for a moment there. Could he? Just before five, a complimentary email came from the supervisor. Trevor was being considered for an important new project and had to write up a prospectus ASAP. But he didn't. Once he'd taken a walk and had dinner, he fell asleep on the couch and dreamed of the theater. A big musical production with Trevor as the lead. He was never the lead. On an opening night high, they all went bar hopping, singing in the streets. He landed in a cozy back booth with the female lead and the handsomest man on crew. They seemed in competition for him. The woman leaned in close and said, Trevor, you're muted. Trevor sat up. The laptop was open. The morning meeting about to start. For an instant, he saw the handsome, cleft-chinned face, heard it saying, I could write a prospectus, sure, but wouldn't it be better to just... But then the sound was gone. The others still seemed to be listening. The face faded as though the green leaves were darkness, and this other man had stepped back from the light. He dimmed until Trevor saw only the beautiful field of flowing green. I'm, I'm here. There's something wrong, he said. He typed into the chat and hit return. It didn't appear in the chat. He re-entered it, but it did not ever appear. There was nothing to do but watching the others watching, smiling, nodding, admiring. After a while, there was applause. That was Christy Nogle's Viridian Green, as read by Bryce Dolly. Bryce Dolly is new to voiceovers and voice acting, and is excited to jump into it. If you'd like him to record anything for you, he can be found at fiverr.com slash awkwardmammal. Thank you, Bryce. The third contest entry we'll hear tonight comes our way courtesy of James Canis. James grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and graduated from Pepperdine University. He has other work published in Maudlin House and Novel Noctule. He currently resides in the Bay Area. 
Children of the Night, lend me your ears for James Canis's The Nightmare Boy. You have a dream one night, and this dream does not feel like every other dream. It's too real. Like it's something you won't forget while eating breakfast. Like it's something you'll remember as you do with important moments in your life. Like when you break up with someone or watch someone's death. You don't know why. It's dark inside this dream. The black is thick and presses down on you somehow. And you give birth. You feel yourself give birth, and you wouldn't have the slightest idea what that feels like. But even after you wake up from this dream, you'll think you know the sensation intimately. You birth a boy. A beautiful boy. With oil, black eyes. Some unseen force puts him in your arms. You hold him. Lower your arms to keep his hands at a distance when he reaches for your face. You wake up. But when you do, the boy does not disappear. He's right there, inside your skull, waiting for the next time you go to sleep, hoping that you'll finally let him touch your face. The next time you dream, you dream you're a high school student once more, taking a test that doesn't make any sense to you. The boy is standing in the corner of the classroom, almost like a background prop. He's grown into a toddler and has a tuft of black hair on his head. He smiles at you, but you ignore him and keep at the test that doesn't make any sense. And the next night when you dream, you and your childhood friend are lost in a funhouse full of mirrors that make you look tiny, giant, blade thin, and sometimes sickly. Yet there the boy is, a little older, still smiling at you. And the next many nights as you dream of other things. Each time, he has grown slightly until he's a teenager or Young man dressed in a fine black suit with his hair slicked back. He always feels different from, more real than the rest of the dream. As if everything else is made of paper mache, but he is made of flesh. You take care not to approach him. One night, after years pass, the boy still remaining a fixture in your dreams. Something changes. He's no longer smiling at you. There's a pain on his face, and you try not to look at it for too long. You continue on in your dream, a void of darkness, and find the girl who bullied you in third grade. She called you humpback. In the black, she jumps on top of you and locks her jaw onto your scalp. You feel the ivory of her teeth chewing into your flesh and bone. It's too real. Too intimate. 
Almost like your dream body has more nerve endings than your physical one. You wake up screaming, sweating, and crying. You wretch. You stay sitting up, your arms wrapped around your knees for the rest of the night. You want to believe this was an anomaly. But it's not. And you have deep, visceral nightmares every night. You feel what it is to be sliced open. You feel what it is to be ripped apart. In one dream, ballooned-up versions of your mother and father step on your limbs and grind your bones to dust. All the while, the boy watches from the corner in the darkness, the anguish clear on his face. One night, he is on his knees, weeping. You cannot stand it. You take pills. You start to smoke, as if that'll keep you awake for the rest of your life. It doesn't. You sleep almost every day for barely over an hour at a time. You sleep just until the nightmares consume you. And consume you, they do. Because when you look at yourself in the mirror, you are a withering husk of what you once were. It's something you only allow glimpses of to your family and friends. You feel your heart straining, threatening to burst with every other breath you take. You cannot even escape this body in your dreams. In the thick blackness you see every night, your body is like a dead tree that insects have colonized. Sometimes you see little dark things crawling out of your pores and burrowing themselves back inside your skin, their home. And your body is not your home anymore. Not the dream one. Not the waking one. One day you try waving to yourself in the mirror, but you stop yourself. Afraid you'll see your own arm fall apart like a plank of rotting, half-eaten wood. You do not want to see yourself fall apart. You want to be able to touch your skin without your fingertips being repulsed. You want to be able to show yourself to those who love you. As you were able to do before birthing the boy. You want to sleep. Long and well. Long and well enough for your body and mind to resurrect. So, one night in the warped darkness, you approach the boy crying in the corner. You offer your hand, and he can hardly believe his eyes. He takes your hand reverentially and allows you to help him to his feet. And there's nothing gnawing at your scalp. No insects swimming along your skin. He lifts his hand, holds it just inches from your face. Delicately. He hesitates. His fingers tremble. You close your eyes and nod. 
When his hand relaxes onto your face, there is a warmth that passes through his fingers and onto your skin, as if some of his beauty is seeping from his hand and filling the rest of your body. Maybe it can be your home again. You breathe in calmly, watches the boy smiles, and you know you'll be able to sleep again, holding yourself tightly. And the next morning, you do not wake up. That was James Canis's The Nightmare Boy, as read by Austin Stern. Austin Stern is a 22-year-old part-time college student from southwestern New Mexico and newcomer to all things narration. He's glad to narrate for Tales to Terrify and thanks you for having him. Thank you, Austin. Our penultimate tale tonight comes from Carrie Lee Grady. Carrie Lee Grady loves to sink into happily ever after tales, especially when her testosterone-loaded house has hit its monthly limit of athletic socks and slapstick. She holds an MFA from Seton Hill University and a BS in computer science. She's a nerd with an unnatural love of dark humor, gadgets, chickpeas, animals, not that kind of unnatural, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, terrible acrylic landscapes, bad poetry, and silversmithing. Don't worry, she owns lots of fire extinguishers. Find out more at klgrady.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Carrie Lee Grady's The Nightmare She Wears. When Olivia has nightmares, she always sees the face. Maybe she sees it in her dream. Maybe she doesn't see it until her heart has stopped racing and she's gone pee, but she always sees the face. It presses from the wall and separates, floating millimeters away from the failed barrier between her room and the nightmarish outside world. The boy's face, mask-like and haunted, watches her from its perch near the ceiling, watches her until she falls back into slumber or until daylight unmutes the room. Sometimes it's difficult to look straight at it, and other times the visage is still. Always it watches. But yesterday, when she woke from dreaming of raging boys that chased her around deserted, impossible halls of her school, threatening to hurt her and taunting her, the face did not appear. Not when she stared at the wall in anticipation. Not when she returned from the bathroom, jumped the last foot to her bed, and scrambled beneath the safety of her covers. 
not in the final seconds of silent night. And it doesn't show itself tonight, not even when she begs for it to come. She presses her eyes closed and whispers herself to sleep, sleep, so maybe it will appear to her in a nightmare. But her eyes pop open and she stares at the empty wall that separates her safe bedroom from the world outside. The next morning, hollow exhaustion trails her to school, where she sits through taunts and jibes her teacher ignores as she passes out graded exams. Olivia takes hers, folds it quickly, and hides it in her desk. She saw the 99A scrawled at the top and is curious to know what she missed, but she cannot give her classmates any opportunity to harass her. They do, though. After class, as she numbly exchanges binders in her locker, they taunt her and grab at her and pop her training bra, scattering only when a teacher sticks his head out of the classroom and glares at them. When the teacher glares at her, too, she drops her gaze to the floor and tries to walk past him. He gently grasps her shoulder, stopping her for the moment it takes to offer his best advice. They'll leave you alone if you stop giving them a reason to bother you. Olivia skips her next class and hides in the bathroom. Afterwards, she rides her bus home, races to her room, and sits on her bed, willing night to come and the face to appear. When it doesn't, she cries herself to sleep, falling into a nightmare where raging boys catch her, pin her down, grope her, and taunt her, and tell her she cannot have the life she wants. They sneer and hoot with joy as they take a blade to her face, carving around it and plucking out her eyes. And then she's the monster, straddling the boy with the knife. His eyes are wide as he stares at her, as he screams, as she drapes the skin of her former face over his. A hole opens beneath him and he falls into it. Falls until he's swallowed by a darkness as black as her bedroom when she first turns off her light. Somewhere in that nothing, giants writhe and reach. She wakes in a sweat, her heart racing. The face appears in its usual place, pulling away from the failed barrier between her nightmares and reality. At first, it's difficult to look at, its angles wrong and stinging her eyes, and then it stills. She slides from her bed and drags the chair from her desk to a spot beneath the mask. After only a second of hesitation, she steps onto the chair and stands nose to nose with the face. This close, she can see it was never part of the wall at all. It was never meant to be part of this world. Might not have been if not for her. It watches her with its haunted eye holes, its features still as a teeming lake, until she reaches out and plucks it from the air. The mask is cold on her face. And she giggles when it squirms against her skin.
That was Carrie Lee Grady's The Nightmare She Wears, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast, since 2014. She has narrated stories for various other podcasts, including Knife Point Horror and The Alexandria Archives. She's thrilled to read for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. You can contact Amy through her website, thebloodlust.net. Thank you, Amy. To cap off our evening, we've got a delightfully dark morsel. The winning tale of our flash fiction contest, which comes to us from T.F. Ahmad. T.F. Ahmad is a writer and narrator from Chicago. His fiction has been published in Dark Futures and Soiled Magazine. He now podcasts his own strange fiction at The Night Bulletin. Search for it on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. You can also follow him on Instagram at The Night Bulletin. Feast your ears, children of the night, on T.F. Ahmad's A Short Letter from Nasir Farouk to his friend Sir Christopher Collins, the winner of our Flash Fiction Contest. Chris, please heed this warning. For all that is holy under your God, do not come to the Harbor Hotel. What I have experienced has put me at fear not only for my safety, but for yours as well. I know this may seem like an exaggeration to you, but I assure you, I am being absolutely serious. I arrived in Karachi and swiftly made my way from Dry Airport to my accommodations at the Harbor Hotel. I checked in around 5 p.m. and went straight to bed, for my journey had been long and arduous. I was awoken near midnight by the sound of the sliding door to my balcony being opened. This slight sound, for some reason, was enough to awaken and at once make me alert. I sat up in the complete darkness and looked towards the sliding door. The opening allowed in a thin sliver of moonlight that cut a slice out of the dark room. I reached for the lamp on my bedside table, but stayed my hand when I saw movement at the corner of my vision. I turned, and from the almost total darkness, the floating face of a young boy emerged. His eyes were two wide, empty holes, black pools devoid of any light or any life. I froze. I should have turned the light on to banish this darkness before me, but I could not move. The face of the boy grew closer and stopped twenty feet away. He looked as thin as a sheet, the moonlight casting strange, unnatural shadows upon the walls and the floor. I did not for one second believe that this was some youth playing a joke on me. My mind cycled through every rational explanation and tossed them aside with rapidity. 
do not be frightened, Zav, a voice said. The face did not move, yet I heard a soft, young voice enter my ears. Who are you? I asked. Why are you in my room? Uncle, please, leave this place. I was frightened, but my voice grew defiant. This is my room. You are the one who must leave. I will call the front desk immediately. At this threat, the face grew larger in my vision. I was about to scream for help, my initial fear now banished, but the next word from the phantom closed my throat like the grip of the hangman's noose. Sir Christopher Collins The sound of your name gave me a distinct fright that is hard to describe. Your name said with such a voice. I swallowed. It felt like swallowing a brass ball. What of him? I finally asked. He is your friend, a great friend of many years. Both he and you are in danger if you remain here. What kind of danger? There is someone in your midst, someone in the colonial government of the British Raj, who is very close with the Viceroy. In order to advance his own career, he is willing to reveal yours and Mr. Collins' indiscreet relationship to his superiors. The words of this shaitan made me angry. How dare he speak of our relationship in such a manner? He does not know that when we met I was so startled by your blue eyes that I was unable to speak a coherent sentence. Nor does he know the great lengths you have gone through to make sure your wife does not happen upon our correspondence. To burn letters of love is a harsh punishment, like the self-flagellation of religious fanatics. What am I to do with this individual? I asked the ghost. We both know of whom he is speaking, my dear Christopher, and we will deal with him in time. Nothing, it responded, for he is beyond your power to reach. You must leave with haste, that is all that can be done. There was a finality in this sentence that made me panic. I still had so many unanswered questions. Please, I implored, at least tell me who or what you are. Why have you appeared to me tonight in such a frightening fashion? Why give me warnings of impending doom? What do you seek to gain by this? The silence that engulfed the room felt so total that I feared the apparition had fled. But in time, it answered. I do not seek to frighten, only warn. That is my charge. Remember, Nasir Farouk, that not all ghosts are malevolent. With those words, the ghostly boy receded into the night as if it had never existed. I sprung from the bed and turned on the bedside lamp. The room was immediately illuminated. The room was also empty of any apparition. I shakily went to the writing table and have spent the entire night composing this letter. Chris, I believe the words of the spirit. I believe that, for some otherworldly reason, it has decided to issue us a warning for the sake of our safety. It simply knew too much about us to be anything else. It scared me, true, but it did me no harm. Was it an angel? or another divine messenger of some kind, I do not know. You may dismiss the words in this letter as overwrought nerves. 
but I choose to speak the truth of my experiences to you, because I believe you will trust me when I say to remain in London until you hear from me next. I must go now, for I have an important meeting to attend. Yours forever, Asir Farouk, July 1st, 1945. Officer's Note This letter was found on the corpse of Sir Christopher Collins, who was found dead in his room at the Harbour Hotel in the Indian city of Karachi, July 30th, 1945. The cause of death is unknown. The writer of this letter, a Mr. Nasir Farouk, is currently missing. The investigation is ongoing. That was T.F. Ahmad's A Short Letter from Nasir Farouk to His Friend, Sir Christopher Collins, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams, well, you know Seth by now, don't you? Seth is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as managing editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week 
as we share fresh, dreadful morsels with more Tales to Terrify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.